Hello, and welcome to The Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the bleeding disorders community. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other host, the other advocate, the other nonprofit nerd, the person, Amy Board. She otherizes herself so hard in this introduction. Other, other. Today, Amy and I are joined by the founder of Rare Patient Voice, Wes Michael, who joins to talk about the work that they do at Rare Patient Voice and patients and caregivers, ways that you can get paid for just giving your opinion. We're going to talk to Wes about that and more in a little bit. Plus, we have Joshua Sterling Bragg back with the latest from Let's Talk, our mental health segment covering moments from the Let's Talk documentary and expanding upon them with clinical experts and others. Josh will be back with that in just a little bit, brought to us by Sanofi Genzyme. And I must say, it's just good this week. Oh, Let's Talk is good this week. Good oh, we're doing week. a good version of it now. Stick around for Let's Talk, I'm just saying. Before we get to all of that, I wanna remind you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast, Apple, Spotify, etc. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you can follow Bloodstream Media there, share our episodes with friends. And as always, listeners, I must remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. That website, once again, is bleedingdisorders.com for wherever on the journey you may be, bleedingdisorders.com. Amy, we got a lot to get to. Apparently a masterpiece of a Let's Talk segment. The interview and discussion with Wes, we haven't seen in years. It was really nice to catch up with him. But before we get to all that, how are you? I'm I'm great. I, I'm I'm great. I'm You're so great. great. I, I just I I just want <laughs> listeners to know that I think Patrick did that intro from memory, and that's not how we do it. Is that true? Did you do it from memory? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. It's a little inside baseball for everybody. Inside baseball. I just I just wanted to mention it. I was watching your eyes. I'm like, I don't think he's reading from the script that we normally read. We have like a script. No, I don't think you did that. Five plus years, and once in a while, I can just go off book and nail it. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. I, I'm going to say you are impressed. And uh, with me, I'll say thank you. Yes! Oh my gosh. So Patrick, let's get into it. Let's get into our interview with Wes Michael from Rare Patient Voice. This segment actually is brought to you by Genentech. Genentech is a leader in the hemophilia community that is committed to advancing all aspects of life with hemophilia, starting with patient care. Genentech takes the safety of people with hemophilia A very seriously. That's why they monitor all of their treatments to create innovative and effective solutions for the community. To learn more about Genentech's treatments and how they may help, visit www.treathemophilia.com. And Patrick, let's get into it. Let's get into our conversation with Wes Michael. All right, joining us now from Rare Patient Voice, his name is Wes Michael. Wes, thank you. You and I go back, we were just talking about this off mic to uh, years ago, well before we weren't allowed to see each other in person, but haven't seen each other in many years. So it's very nice to see you back in this capacity and welcome to Bloodstream. Thanks so much. Great to see you, Patrick. Let's just start with Rare Patient Voice and how we know each other to begin with. I know it started in 2013, but your experience, of course, in hemophilia and in this area goes back well before that. What's the genesis of Rare Patient Voice and and what led you to want to start it in the first place? Can you give us some history of uh, your experience before Rare Patient Voice as well? Yeah, the, the interesting thing is uh, I have to thank the bleeding disorders community for this. I mean, we work now in hundreds of disease areas, but that was the genesis of this, and that was the first area we worked. 
So many years ago in the 1990s, I worked for a market research company. You know, we would interview people and do surveys and such. And a hemophilia company came to us and said, boy, there's not a lot of them out there, but we'd love to talk to them, do surveys, do interviews, people with hemophilia A, hemophilia B, von Willebrands. Could you build a panel of those people? We don't want their names or anything, keep them confidential, but we'd like to you know, invite them to, to research. So we went to the NHF, went there and it was very successful. We went with our giveaway items and our clipboards and several people came down and we met so many folks. People signed up and it worked out well. The company would do surveys now and then. And then a couple years later, we were at three or four years later at another NHF, right? Somebody from a different hemophilia company came up and said, hey, I hear you have this patient panel. Can we access it? And I went, well, no, you know, it's proprietary. This client paid for it, et cetera, et cetera. But that got the wheels turning. I'm like, hey, I wonder if there's a business to make people's opinions available to more than with just one company. For many years, I told my wife, someday, someday, that's what I'm going to do. And then it all came together for me in 2013, where I was looking for something else. I said, I'm going to do it. I kept talking to people, said, there's a need, there's a need. We, we, these people love to share their stories, but it's tough for us to find them. So I said, I'm going to do it. And I said, I'm going to start, guess what, with hemophilia, because I had done it before. I knew there was so much going on in that category. I've been working with companies in that area. And so the first thing I did was after we got the name and all that stuff, I said, I'm going out to the NHF. <laughs> and that time it was in Disneyland in Anaheim. And on the way out there, I got a call from a, a company, somehow had heard about us and said, hey, we're doing a survey in hemophilia and we're having a really tough time. Do you happen to have anybody? And I said, no, but by the end of the weekend, I will. And so we went there and recruited and, and, and a lot of people signed up. So I always, I have a warm spot in my heart <laughs> for the bleeding disorders folks. And then again, since then, sure. we've done 5,000 studies of 600 diseases and we've paid patients and caregivers $7 million because we pay people $100 an hour for their time. Wow. It's interesting that you kept hearing the same thing, the same need. It's hard to find patients. It's hard to find these stories. It's hard to find people. Why do you think that was, or I would actually say still is in many ways, what were you doing at the time that you started Rare Patient Voice that was successful? What made you different? Why were you able to recruit when others couldn't? I think it was the simple thing. We said, we'll just have to go to where the people are. Because typical market researchers will go and they'll, you could have a huge panel for people that eat Cheerios and drive Chevys or whatever, right? <laughs> if you have a million people, how many are going to have hemophilia? A handful. Right. So people were just used to doing things the way they did it. And we said, wait a minute, let's go where the people, and we didn't know it would work. I just said, well, I don't know what else to do. Let's do that. <laughs> were the people resistant at all? Or were they just very receptive to you once you found them? I think they were curious. And especially in the early years, because I think now people are in the community so research savvy because there's so much that's going on. Yeah, yeah. We do 50 some surveys a year. So I was averaging like one a week. And then there's other people doing things too, I'm sure. So, but, but back then I think it was pretty new. People go, it was a little bit like a what, uh, how is it safe? That's the most important thing. Yes. We don't share your yeah, name with anybody. Sure. Nobody sees that. And then that we get paid. So we always made sure let's pay people right away. Let's not have that be an issue, but just going to the events and then working with like the chapters, the uh, whatever organizations, and some are more open than others, but it's like, hey, wherever we could go to meet folks and spread the word. And then guess what? The neat thing is, and you know this, families know other patients and families. A couple people up in New York, I swear, they would call me like a loneliness friend and I would be on the phone, but they would like be in competition. Yeah. They would say, I can find you more people than she can. Oh, the families were like competing with each other to recruit, you're saying? Yeah. And, 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 and again, they go to their support group. So they spread the word. 
we started the ball rolling and then the community kind of picked it up and in fact done our work for us. Thank God. <laughs> I have a clarifying question. You said this is market research. Can you describe or like kind of define like what market research is and how it's different from a clinical trial or other research projects that are taking place in the hemophilia community? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Market research, I like it's opinion research. A lot of a lot of a lot of people say, How do I prepare? It's like we don't ask for blood. Just come with your opinions. Maybe that should be the tagline. Like, we don't ask for blood. Yeah, especially especially with your community. <laughs> very clarifying right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fair. I mean, that's like a very distinctive difference between that and clinical trials. Well, it used to be phone interviews. So often now they're Zoom or whatever interviews, mm. sure. which is great because you don't all have to be in New York or Chicago. You can be in Montana. You know, you can be anywhere and participate. Or it could be with the online surveys that everybody knows and, and loves. They can be, you know, unfortunately, it can be a bit boring, but people can get on it and click their way through. Or even in-person groups like focus groups or in-person interviews pre-COVID and someday again. Where companies want to find people's opinions because, you know, they got a new treatment, a new factor coming out, whatever it might be, or a new website. Get some input from the people that are going to be reading it, using it, needing to understand it. It's an age old question. But in the medical world, for years, companies would generally just talk to physicians because all of the prescribers and everybody does what the physician says. It's like over the years, it's like, no, they're not the users they're not the parents they're you know, and they've learned you've got to talk to those folks. Yeah, talk to the physicians, too. Obviously, they're very important. But. Don't just stop there. People come in with their, they've done their research. Should I switch to this factor? Should I do this? Should I do that? You need to inform them directly. That's a great way to kind of help distinguish for people. It's opinion research. It's about your experience. There's no needles involved. They're not going through any kind of medicine or treatment, investigational, anything. Market research is more, what's your experience? What's your opinion? Is that correct? That's exactly right. They often will show you something and they want you to react to it. Here's a website. Here's a, here's a color of our logo. Here's a description most often, it's when something new is coming out. What do you think? What, what are the positive? What is the negative? What would you ask your doctor about? And people like that because it's like getting a sneak preview, right? Now, I think it's great, too, that you mentioned up front the amount of money that goes out to patients for their participation, their time, their expertise. In my opinion, I think that's completely fair and legitimate. But I also know that there are different rules and regulations around money going to patients and information that's exchanged. Have you learned anything in particular that might be clarifying for people who are skeptical of the payment piece and how that may in one way or another influence things? Or can you just speak to that a little bit? Because I'm sure you've faced this over the years. Yeah. We said at the beginning, let's pay people at $100 per hour. So it's a 30 minute, that's $50, you know, that kind of thing. It works out. For the most part, we did not get pushback from the companies. Every once in a while, somebody would say, well, our lawyers say the fair market value is $58 and 32 cents. It's like, mm. we say, well, we've done more studies than you have, and we think it's $100. So most often we've been able to do it. Every once in a while, we'll say, but we'll, we'll just be honest about it. If it's not, a, well, we always say what it is, but if it's some number other, we'll say, well, we'll say it. People are used to getting this amount, so but we'll be honest with them. If people want to do it for that, you know, or sometimes they say more, and I never object to that. If they say, "Hey, maybe we'd like to pay 150," it's like, Ging, no problem, you know, <laughs> let's sure. let's do that. Sure. I know with clinical trials because we've started started to invite people to that as well. There's there's issues about paying because people get the treatment, they might get reimbursed for travel, things like that. But there's really a controversy over whether they should be paid or not. To me, it's like it's enough barriers to doing that kind of thing as it is. Let's take down some of the barriers. You know, you're going to miss work. Right. Come on. You know, right. or, or you have to travel somewhere and miss days and such. But fortunately, so much of our work, uh, the end client, not the people we're dealing with, the end client are the pharmaceuticals and biotechs. 
they're paying the physicians a lot more than they're paying the patients, right? So there's not been an issue mm. and we have less and less pushback over the years. I like to say there's a value to them in paying too, because you know, if you don't pay for something, you don't value it as much. Like if somebody has a free ticket to the opera and you're like, ah, I might not go. If you paid a hundred dollars to it, you'd, you'd be going. Mm -hmm. They're paying people. It's more like, let's listen to these people. You know, we're paying for it. Let's listen. So I think there's a value for the companies to pay because you value what you pay for. What do you do with the data and that information that you collect? Where does that go? And tell us about that. Sure. So there's kind of two parts to that. First is the information we collect as rare patient voice. And that's very limited. We just want to collect enough to target people so we don't invite them. We don't want to invite a hemophilia B patient to a hemophilia A study. You know, that's a waste of their time. Mm. So we collect whatever the condition is and type or subtype, and then some basic things. If it's like in hemophilia, mild, moderate, severe, because that's often a key, a key area, age, gender, when diagnosed, but just a, a limited number of items so that we can target folks. And then we don't share that with anybody. We only use it ourselves to reach out. Now, when we reach out for a study, our clients may be collecting all sorts of, you know, a 30 minute survey or a little, And so what happens with that data is very important. We don't actually see that data. Uh, we know who did the study and pay them, but we don't see their answers. That company sees the answers, but they don't know who did it. Mm. So it's a great way of protecting privacy. But that's the information that the companies use to make their decisions, right? They're going to say, hey, we've talked to these folks. You know, they're really concerned about, we didn't mention anything about inhibitors. We need to tell them about whatever it might be. That's where they're making their decisions or, or they like the purple more than the blue, you know, for the tagline or whatever it might be. So they're getting all that to make their decisions, but separated from their identity. You know, when you mentioned using that information to help target people for the appropriate research as a patient, I appreciate that because there is so much going on and there, there are so many different surveys and studies and things asking for attention. And even with money attached, sometimes it's just, it's just too much or I, I, or I just right, can't right. be like brought there again. So the focusing factor I think is really, really helpful. I'm wondering, have you learned anything from the way that you set things up in hemophilia that helped you scale across all of these other diseases over time? Because this, the growth that you speak about is pretty extraordinary. I want to underscore that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the key thing we learned and since we started with hemophilia is things that apply to everybody, every patient, every caregiver. Because in the hemophilia community, you certainly have patients and then you have caregivers, especially moms and dads, but especially moms, right? And so how to communicate them, appeal to them. What, what we learned going to a lot of the events is I'm a mom of a kid with X. I'm a mom of a kid with Y. They connect emotionally. And that's much more powerful. All of a sudden, they're, they're in and they're helping and they're doing stuff. So I think we learned that early on. We might have learned it dealing with any community. It's just it's like how people are, right? The other thing, though, that's more challenging, especially with you know, hemophilia A and B, is the male aspect of it. Men are terrible survey takers versus women. <laughs> I mean, this sounds sexist, but I've seen the data, you know, I've seen you it. You work at the data. Yeah, you're on the yeah, data I'm not, side. I'm, so. not, I'm, not try, I'm not trying to bash men, but women are much more likely to open up and share, et cetera. Men is like pulling teeth, right? Mm -hmm. We find that prostate cancer versus breast cancer is another example of that, right? Generally women with breast and men with prostate. Same thing. The women come out of the woodwork to tell us everything. The men, it's like, please, come on, come on. Hmm. So that, that was a good learning early on. As a 35-year-old male patient who at times is like, I can't look at another survey. I can't participate in more research. It's too much. Enough, enough, enough. Give me the pitch. Why is it important that people like me and caregivers continue to participate and help me know how can I maybe like change my thinking or narrow what I'm looking at so it doesn't feel as overwhelming at times? Yeah, that's a good point. I think most important is 
these companies, they have a lot of decisions to make. Sure. Marketing-wise, as well as clinical, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to make them one way or the other. They have no choice. So would you rather be on the inside, at least getting your opinion shared or not, and having the guy base it on his, you know, people around him that don't even have the disease that he's thinking, hey, they would like this versus that. So one of our guys has MS and he does it done surveys and he helped them redesign this certain cane because he gave them certain feedback. Now, sometimes you'll do it and you'll say, I told him I hated that idea. And I see they came out with, oh, well, you know, other people had different ideas. But so that to me is very important. It's like telling people to vote. I mean, not everybody votes, but don't be complaining if you don't vote, right? Your voice is waiting to be heard. And then we've learned a lot over the years to just try to make, like we'll send an email, try to make it bullet point, key things. And we'll even say in the header, hemophilia A, 30 minute online survey, $50 or the key things right there. So when they read it, they find a little bit more or if there's homework or whatever there might be. Now, the other thing, my personal emails, I hardly read any of them, it's all junk. So how do you cut through that? So one, we just ask people look for rare patient voice, but the other things we're starting to get permission from a lot of people to text because I look at my texts because there's few enough of them. Now, someday I'm sure there'll be as messy, <laughs> messy as emails. I hope not, but, but anyway, people do read text and I, I know I do, but, but emails, it's like, ah, oh, there's so much of that. And, and uh, you don't even try to get through it all. So that's been a challenge, but we try to make it as simple as possible. I want to comment on something that I really appreciate Wes about the way that you are sharing. And I, th I appreciate how open you are and how passionate you are for the work that you do. You know, there's a lot of talk about patient centricity and putting the patient voice at the center and, and, and what have you. But as you talk about the reasons that you are successful in recruiting patients and you're successful at being able to get the word out about studies and why they need to think differently. And with the comment you made about the way doctors and physicians are paid very differently than patients for their time and expertise on this subject when the patients are the end users. And I just, hear a lot of advocacy for the patient at the center of things as you talk, as you talk about reaching people via text and being reached by text. It just all suggests to me that you're thinking deeply about what actually moves the needle for patients and caregivers. What are they responding to? What are their needs actually? And that's the kind of thinking that needs to be pulled through across the board for people who are working on medicines or services for patients and for caregivers. You have to be thinking, what is their experience? And if you're not appreciating that fully, you're leaving a tremendous amount of insight on the table. So again, Amy, I don't know maybe where you were thinking of turning next, but I just wanted to get that in there, Wes, while it was fresh. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's so important, I think. I kind of, you know, to go on the opposite end of it, <laughs> just because, you know, why not? What about those patients that are skeptical, that have participated in these studies, that haven't seen a lot of change or haven't seen their voice matter? Maybe what can you say to that type of reality for some of these patients and families? Yeah, I mean, things are never going to go change as fast as you want. On the one hand, we've been spoiled in the past year how fast, right, the COVID response. Though, if you read about it, people work in that, that same approach for 20 years. It just happened, you know, they were at the right time in the right place. But but anyway, we got spoiled of how fast that got out and got approved. And and we know how slow things can be in, in getting getting treatments and things approved. So, you know, I, I, I get that. I'm just amazed at what I've seen since I've been involved in this. When I first started talking to folks here, Prophylaxis was a new thing. Now, thank God, it's it's like the, the, the commonality, the recombinant versus the, the the human. You know, all the horrible things that happened with with you know with HIV and stuff. We got beyond that, and then the longer half life products. All of a sudden, you didn't necessarily have to take the things as long, and and then now we're gonna you know it's gonna be gene therapy, and I, someday I think there'll be a cure. You know, so anyway, there's been a lot. It's just as back to Patrick to, to your series. Yeah, you, know, you go through the decades. It's been a long time since the 50s, but a lot has happened, fortunately. And I think the research contributes to that. I, I, what I see is, what's the, what's the, from, the, from the baseball movie, if you build it, they will come. 
now that people can talk to patients, they do it more. I mean, they used to say, can you get me two or three? Well, we get them 10. Well, if we get them 10, let's talk to 10. Let's do a survey with 50. So they'll do it more often. And then the more they hear, the more likely they are to say, here's the issue. Let's see what we can do. And, and you know, these companies are very competitive. If we can do something to get a leg up on the other guy, and here's an issue they're not solving. And it might be a small one. It might be something to do with the equipment or something. Everything could be helpful. So um, it's the usual. We'd all want it more to happen faster. But some of this, you just have to keep plugging away. You know, you get that little example, too, of the guy with the cane, you know, if you can help people, if you can point out a few wins, you know, along the way, too, maybe it helps people be able to see, oh, okay, that's an example of someone contributed and there was an outcome. But I think that snowball effect is really important to emphasize. What I heard from you there is that there's an appetite. Yeah. Once there is a clear response for the patient voice that these companies have an appetite for more voice, more input. So that gives us an even bigger seat at the metaphorical table. So that I think is important for me to hear again, as someone who can be skeptical at times or burned out or just don't think it's important, or is this really going to change things? And in hemophilia, there's sometimes so much activity that might be a bit of an outlier to some other disease states. So many companies now are setting up advisory boards, like they'll have us recruit patients. So they want people to be there ready to take a call or ready to quick get on a little board to talk about an issue. Or so isn't that great? So so when they have a quick question, uh, let's not take a few weeks to do a survey. They'll say, let's call our advisors. There's mm. 10 patients there. And the more that there's patients with different opinions, the better off they are. You know, don't, don't just put yes people there. Get people that are going to challenge them. The more people have that attitude of the, the world's not moving fast enough, hey, the more they should speak up. So for patients and caregivers who are out there and are maybe thinking, all right, you know what? This sounds like a way to get involved in research. I like the way that this guy's talking. I like the way that this organization is set up, the way information is filtered. This all makes sense to me. What can people do to learn more about rare patient voice? And then what's the process? You know, do I sign up? Do I, what, what do I do if I'm interested in, in engaging meaningfully, let's say? The place to do everything is our website. It's rarepatientvoice.com. And so on there, one is all sorts of information. Uh, we try to be open. We list all the things. We have blogs, we have information, but we have phone numbers too. If somebody has a question, I'm, I'm excited when somebody asks. You know, it's like, I don't understand this or that, but information is there. And then there's also various buttons there that say sign up. And when you sign up, it asks you, as I say, not a lot of stuff, but they want, we want to find out your condition and we want to be able to get in hold of you via email and, and text if possible and, and condition or subconditions. So we target you for the right thing. We also ask if somebody referred you to us because we have a referral program, people that refer company advocacy groups. We pay $10 to the advocacy group to refer. So please mention who did that. That's the key thing. We also have a, a pretty active Facebook page. I guess everybody does. Rare Patient Voice, but we're always posting things, some new studies there, whatever it might be, things that uh, various partners have. We like to put it out there. And so whenever we have a new study, again, we look at people that most likely will qualify and we'll email and I get more and more world text. We also mentioning in a newsletter, we'll send newsletters out to people that have signed up. And so they can see that if they've missed an email, they can read that or, or especially some that are difficult for us to fill. Like we have a bunch, but we're looking for more. Those will be on there. So they may know somebody or they may they think they qualify themselves. They may know somebody else and say, well, I know somebody that might want to do this. But the starting point is, is, is signing up and we're very responsive to, to any questions we get. So it's rarepatientvoice.com. You can look up Rare Patient Voice on Facebook as well. And if you just Google Rare Patient Voice. So really, you can find Rare Patient Voice. If you have access to the internet, Rare Patient Voice is available to you somewhere. I think it's really helpful to have someone's name, someone's voice, to know who's behind, especially something like market research and the exchange of such intimate information, but often in such you know sanitized ways and there's such procedural ways. It's yeah, very yeah. transactional, but yet it's so sensitive. I think it's really helpful for people to hear what's behind 
behind it all. You've given me just a different way to kind of think about research today, just based on this conversation. So I imagine some listeners have had the same experience. So thank you for coming on. That's great. You know, that's that's similar to the, the same reason why I love to go to events and have people at events, because not only do we explain to people, but they see who we are. They see it's real people. It's not some bot, you know, from whoever writing something. And then when they get their email from us, they're more likely, oh yeah, I met that guy. Or I met that mom. And so we know that they're real, real people. And they know we're real people. And, you know, that's more value than I ever would have thought of that. Thanks for being with us today, Wes. It was wonderful. Thank you. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks. That was great. Thank you. Rarepatientvoice.com for more. Hey, thanks to Wes. And thanks to Patrick for leading that interview with me. That was fun. Let's switch it up, everybody. Let's get in to Let's Talk. Let's Talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi Genzyme, and it aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorder community. For people living with or caring for someone with a bleeding disorder, the impact on mental health is largely invisible and not often discussed. Let's Talk shares tips on how to care for your own or someone you love's mental health and strives to eliminate the stigma associated with this discussion within the bleeding disorder community. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Again, that's letstalkmh.com. And let's get into it. Here's Joshua Sterling Bragg, host of Haunting Season with another episode of Let's Talk. I'm going to reveal a little bit of my nerdiness to you today. After all, this is the Let's Talk segment, right? It's a safe space for us to share. Right now, I feel a little bit like Data, the android from Star Trek The Next Generation. See, in the show, Data looks like a human and speaks like a human and has deductive reasoning like a human, but he is actually a very logical and calculating supercomputer. He's emotionless, going day by day through the steps to complete his job and to fit in with the rest of the crew. Data's curious about how humans function and tries his hand at playing jazz and classical music, at painting and performing Shakespeare, which are all, of course, human forms of self-expression. And he always gets the same response from the crew. Technically, you performed very well, but there was no heart, no soul. So one episode, somewhere in season four, he meets his creator who gifts him with a computer chip that will unlock his ability to experience emotions. And suddenly... Like a switch turned on, he has to navigate feelings for the first time, which of course complicates every decision that he makes. Why on earth am I telling you all of this? Well, I've shared on here before that I was feeling numb and I felt like I had lost my sense of self, my laid back personality, my dude, if you will. And that's what really drove me to enroll in therapy. Well, I've been going every week to work on myself, and a few weeks back I made the discovery that I've been boxing up my personality as a trauma response to a couple of intense experiences in my life, not the least of which has been the pandemic. In order to protect myself, I've walled off parts of my life experiences. There's the time my buddy fell off a cliff and survived. There's the car accidents I was in as a teenager. There are deaths of loved ones, deaths of the pandemic, being a part of Patrick and Natalie's birth experience with Vivian, which if you haven't listened to that episode of Bloodstream, uh, it's a trip. The point is, as an adult who has lived on this planet for decades now, I've seen some stuff. And instead of dealing with it, instead of feeling the enormous emotional response to trauma, I've put myself to work building up walls around parts of who I am to protect against feeling that profound emotional intensity. 
The problem with that, of course, is that we are vastly complex beings. We can't just flip a switch and say, no, I'm not going to cry anymore. We can't just say, I'd like to feel this, but not that. No, blocking off my sadness bit by bit blocked off my happiness as well, and my curiosity, and my excitement. And as I continued to build these barriers, this house within a house, I've walled off everything interesting about being a human being. I've reduced myself to an android, desperately seeking what it means to be human. Let's talk. I've started traveling again, just domestically for single-day shoots. And when I get home, my wife Courtney and I treat the next day as a hangover day. We get a little bit of junk food and sit on the couch and binge watch a TV show start to finish. It's a rest day, a recovery day. Well, last weekend, we decided to binge all 10 hours of Made, a show about an emotional abuse survivor on her path to become an independent single mom. And in order to provide for her child, she gets a job as a maid. The show's wonderfully done, and I, of course, won't spoil anything here, but at one point in her work as a cleaner, she comes across a hoarder. And as she enters the house, I just started to weep. I lost my grandfather a few months back. I had to attend his funeral on Zoom, and I haven't been able to see my grandma yet. And they're hoarders. My memories of being in their house are rooms packed to the ceiling with stuff, an entire screened-in porch of paintings, a basement turned into a literal maze of boxes, my dad's childhood bedroom piled to the ceiling with sweaters collected over three-quarters of a century. My dad and his brother have been cleaning out the house, making it livable for my grandmother. It's been months of work, and I've seen the photos and the progress over the months, and all the while have felt nothing until I saw this episode, or really just the set piece of a hoarder's house in this episode, and I started to cry. And instead of hiding that, instead of trying to desperately repair the wall around that death that was starting to crumble, I just let it fall. I turned to Courtney and said, this is reminding me of my grandpa, and I cried. Courtney paused the show, came to my side of the couch, and we just let the feelings wash over me. And then talked for a minute. And that was that. We went back to watching the show. This wasn't a split-second decision. No, this is actually the product of weeks' worth of work with my therapist to get myself to understand that reliving a traumatic event through memory won't kill me. It'll feel sad. It might even feel very scary, but it won't kill me. And the more I allow myself to walk through the feelings, to allow them to come to the surface and to experience them as memories of intense experiences, well, the more I can break down my walls and start to dig out the full, well-rounded personality I used to be so connected to. It's all connected. With the feelings of deep sadness also come my feelings of curiosity, adventure, excitement, and happiness. There was a very good friend of mine that I met through the World Federation of Hemophilia, the Youth Congress, because I chaired that for about a good four to six years. This is Bobby speaking from our Let's Talk Mental Health documentary. And this particular young man lived in Australia. And we made a pact at one of the meetings that once we both go on treatment and get real good, then we're going to travel to the person's country. Got everything coordinated to get out there. This was in... 2008, 2009. I was going to go out there, do their summer camp with them, et cetera, et cetera. 
got a phone call uh, from the camp director out there that he had passed away. And I just looked at the phone, said, okay. And I went into a good two week period where I just sat, didn't go to work, didn't go to church, didn't do anything, I just sat. I was in my own funk of a conversation that needed to happen and his death made it happen. Where I said, I've got to do what I need to do for me to get to where I eventually want to be. And I said, well, it means just started one step at a time. Now it's time to put the stuff in place and actually started the pieces. Even though the best therapist was found in 2019, had put in some other pieces of different types of therapy that I said, let me try it. Now, when I looked at it, I said, this is hogwash. I said, I'm not gonna sit on somebody's yoga mat and do humadalada. I said, I'm not gonna do it. But I actually said, let me just go try it. I said, cause I don't know, I haven't done it. And so did some hot yoga and I actually liked it. I was like, ooh, this is fun. And it was relaxing cause I didn't have to be on to do it. With everything going on during the week, I made sure I had some part of the day that was just for me. If that just meant, um, if, you know, going to get an ice cream cone and just sitting on the park bench and doing nothing. I did that. I found little pieces to start building myself up first. Cause then I said, okay, after I get myself built to a particular point, then I need to start chipping away at all the old stuff and get it resolved. I'm like, because I told myself that by the time I'm 50, I want to have it all dealt with as much as possible and not to have to keep carrying it on or carrying it on from a generational standpoint. And so kept chipping away. Yes, through some parts of it, it was harder than easier. Some parts was regression and some parts was just pure struggle, but still pushed on through. In the past few weeks since starting to focus on opening up these barriers, I've found myself being more creative. I've decorated my house and my office for Halloween. I've created short videos about my experience shopping or working on a craft like carving jack-o'-lanterns. In fact, this weekend, I bought a painting from Goodwill and went to Michael's for some supplies, and I painted a ghost and some bats and a little cemetery on it to liven it up for spooky season. I'm finding myself again. And it's not easy. In fact, it's pretty intense work. And look, I'm just a guy navigating my own personal journey. I'm no expert. Everyone has a different experience. So as usual, here's what a clinical psychologist had to say about the matter. We're here with Emily Wheat, clinical psychologist at the University of Colorado, HTC. And Emily, what is emotional expression? Why doesn't it look or appear the same for everyone? Amy, that's a great question. So when I think about emotional expression, I think of the way that we talk about, that we share, that we show the way that we feel. And I think there's a lot of different things at play um, when it comes to the way that we um, express ourselves. Um, some of that can do um, with what we learned as we're growing up, how our, our family um, showed us to express our emotions to others. Some of that can do with what's happening around us. Um, our emotions may be expressed a little differently um, in a board meeting versus um, at a pool party with friends, even though we might be feeling the same thing at times. Um, and then some of that just has to do with ourselves and our comfort level with that emotion that we're feeling. So there's a lot of different factors that can come into play. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Amy and Patrick, for giving me the space to come on here and talk. I hope you found it helpful and encouraging. Talking can be so healing. 
If you want access to some incredible mental health resources, you want to explore the film on your own, or you just want to dig deeper yourself, please go check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you, Wes Michael from The Rare Patient Voice and Joshua Sterling Bragg with another excellent, excellent segment from the Let's Talk Mental Health podcast segment brought to us by Sanofi Genzyme. Amy, we had two great guests this week. We have some interesting episodes coming up, including something that we just recorded today with a couple friends from across the pond and somebody here about informed consent. That's going to be coming up in the not too distant future. Informed consent. And I know that everyone listening is like informed consent. That sounds terrible. Let me just say it is a phenomenal conversation. Lively, It's a hoot. We all laughed. So that'll be coming to you in the not too distant future. But with that, that is all for this episode. Thank you all for listening to the Bloodstream podcast. Reminder to subscribe to Bloodstream wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, name a platform, subscribe there. Leave us a review in the Apple store. Say something really nice. Leave five stars. Make us feel real good when we check in on those analytics on Monday mornings. We don't do that. I just pretended that we did, but we could. Uh, Amy and I will be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. I am that other host, advocate, and all the things, Amy Board. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, to segment sponsors, Sanofi Genzyme and Genentech. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. 